This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To start your free 14-day trial, visit shopify.com. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, you'll learn why crowdfunding might not be the right move for established brands. On today's episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that built a brand with a 50% repeat purchase rate. In this episode, you'll learn what is a net promoter score and how to measure it, why you should not post product shots on Instagram, and how to customize your pitch to get pressed to feature you. Today, I'm joined by Ryan Babenzine from greats.com. That's G-R-E-A-T-S.com, which is a Brooklyn-born footwear brand offering tastefully designed men's sneakers starting at $49 and was started in 2014 and based again out of Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, Felix. How are you? Good. I'm doing great. So tell us a little bit more about your store and what are some of the most popular products that you sell? Oh, man. I mean, we're, we're, we've got a couple of... Uh big winners uh our our bab is probably our number one selling shoe by volume but our italian uh royal uh is is fast catching up so you know they they kind of one starts at $59 and the other starts at 159 but they both offer quite a lot of value in the category of style that they are very cool so how did you get started in this uh business have you launched other businesses in the past um, you know, I've, I've got an entrepreneurial spirit, but this is my mm-hmm. first full-time uh, launch of a business, uh, and it really came out of uh, necessity. Frankly, we we were looking. I come from the footwear background. I, I, I held marketing positions at at uh, both Puma and K-Swiss, mm-hmm. and it was pretty clear that you know <clears throat> the traditional model of of uh, wholesale was was really inefficient and and it was essentially breaking and failing um so we felt that you know what if we launched a vertical brand uh in the men's footwear space or sneakers specifically and we were you know we were taking a look at the market and seeing other guys doing it with uh you know warby was certainly a big influence in everlane um but nobody was really doing that in in the sneaker space and Mm -hmm. I believe the reason is, you know, making sneakers is a bit more complex than uh, making uh, a T-shirt, for right. example. You know, that stuff you can make domestically. They make a lot of that in Los Angeles. Where footwear, it's being made outside of the States. They just don't make a lot of uh, sneakers, hardly any, literally like less than a couple percentage points. Uh, so it takes some knowledge and relationships with factories and know-how. Um, but yeah, we understood that business. We had relationships. We knew how to design, develop, and position footwear in the market. So um, we decided to to start to start greats. Yeah, no, that kind of marketing experience in the industry that you want to launch a business is really invaluable. So you notice that there's a market opportunity. Notice that the like you're saying, the traditional model of wholesale uh, with sneakers was very inefficient. So once you kind of recognize that there's this opportunity, like what were the first steps? Like you know, when you decide, okay, I want to start this company selling directly to consumers, selling these uh, this footwear directly to consumers. What did you have to do first? Uh, well, the first thing we had to do is figure out how we were going to do it, you know, in terms of like 
capital. We, we, we felt confident that we could make the shoes and design the shoes and work with partners uh, building the shoes, but we needed capital to do that. So step one was, hey, let's see if we can raise some money. We kind of have a story that, you know, was is just still to this day is shocking to us. We went out to raise money and we raised the amount of money. We were actually oversubscribed for what we were trying to raise within a matter of weeks. Wow. And we, we took seven meetings and out of the seven, five people were willing to write a check and we wound up taking checks from four. So <laughs> no, that's definitely uh, unusual. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a shocking kind of holy sh- experience. And we, literally we went from pitching the deck to quitting our jobs in a matter of four weeks. And that was the start. And we, at that point we had, we hadn't even had a bank account really. We, you know, we had registered the name and that's about it. We didn't have a sample. We didn't have a production contract. We didn't have a website. Um, <clears throat> and that's kind of how it started. But that was the first thing we did, which was raise a little bit of money. That's amazing. So uh, you got to tell us a little bit more about this pitch and this deck. Like how were you able to <laughs> get, you know, because people talk about fundraising and it takes definitely more than a couple of weeks and you had to build relationships for a long time and then get a bunch of no's before you get the yes. Like this is like a very common kind of uh, storyline, but your situation was extremely, I guess, accelerated. Like what do you think was the key to, to um, your success, you know, when it, come, when it came to fundraising? Well, I wish I could say all fundraising for us was that easy, but it yeah. isn't. It, it, it began, uh, it started at a time and it was really easy. I, I think there's a combination of reasons. I think um, it was clear that, that we understood how to do this. So we had a category expertise in footwear. We weren't a bunch of guys figuring out, hey, we think this is a great idea and we'll, we'll learn how to do it. We really understood how to build and market a footwear brand. And then secondly, uh, the, the opportunity. I mean, the market opportunities is tremendous. And um, footwear or sneakers specifically is a very unique culture. And it, 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 it's a bit different than, um, you know, he, people that buy sneakers, in the, you know, they, they spend a disproportionate amount of their income on their style. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting customer to have. And if you can connect with them and, and it's very difficult to do so, you need authenticity, you need great product, you need lots of other things other than just the product itself to really connect. But if you do, you really have a customer for life. And like the, the true lifetime value of a customer in the sneaker business is very different than a lot of our uh, other product categories where you may have them for a year, but you know it's unlikely that they're going to be around with you for five or even two. Um, since we've launched, we've actually proven that out and have demonstrated that you know, this is a different type of business, and uh, it's it's probably why we're seeing such success. That makes sense. So great market timing, and you had the industry ex- expertise on the team, which made it a lot easier to get that um, get those yeses in those meetings. But how did you? How were you able to get them in the first place? How were you able to connect with these investors and get them to spend a time to listen to your your pitch? Yeah. So you know, look, we come from the industry, so we had some relationships around the around the horn, uh, and it was just a matter of saying to to reach out to our network and say we're going to do this. Who should we meet with? And we we were fortunate enough to get. A couple of um, great early meetings for the you know for funds and individuals that had an appetite for these types of businesses, and 
Um, but it was, it was really uh, relationship-based. Frankly, I had never met with a venture capital fund in my life up until that moment. Very interesting. Cool. So um, after the, the funds were raised, you said you quit your jobs and you, were, you didn't have a store yet. Once you had the money, like how did you know how to spend it? Well, like, again, we, we, we knew what we would do with the money before we got it. And it wasn't, there wasn't a lot. Um, there was no learning curve. So we knew where to make it. We knew how to make it and we knew how to design it. So that process went incredibly quickly. Um, the, the learning part came from, Hey, we need to build a website. What, how are we going to do that? What should we do it on? Uh, we started looking at, you know, talking to experts in the, in the category and getting some advice on, you know, what platform should we use? Should we build it ourselves? Um, you know, what are the functionalities that we need? And that for us was a, a big learning experience. Um, we actually, you know, we looked at everybody and, and Shopify was clear, the clear winner for us in terms of, um, functions and ease of use and getting us off the ground pretty quickly. Um, but that, that was the, the web component of our business was the bigger learning Mm. curve for us than the actual footwear making. And I think that was, that's, uh, what made us appealing to our investors. Mm, I see what you're saying. Cause you already had the expertise and you knew how to produce the sneakers and all that is, and you knew how to market it. It was just, uh, you needed the funds to actually have the runway and the capital to, to, you know, launch the business that you already knew essentially how to run because of the expertise you already had. That's right. Cool. Okay, so um, I'm looking, I guess it's public information about the the um, subsequent um, fundraising, so I want to get into that in a second. Uh, before we get there, um, so you had this, uh, you know, this idea, you knew, knew that the, the web component needed to be worked on. What were the first steps you had to take to, to actually get these shoes designed and, and manufactured? Yeah, so we went out and we went to some of the production resources that we had already had relationships with and worked at and, you know, worked with in, in other capacities over the years and told them what our vision was. Um, you know, we're building a vertical footwear brand. You know, at the factory level, that's, um, that's a foreign beast, or at least it was back then because they wanted, they work on kind of order, you know, hey, I sold in this many pairs of shoes to the following retailers and you kind of make, you know, stuff a season mm-hmm. ahead of time. And it's, it's a different, it was a different business. We said, hey, we have no orders, but we're willing to buy 2,400 pairs of this shoe in three colors. Um, and we think we know how to sell it ourselves. And that was, you know, pretty different for them. But uh, fortunately we had, we had and continue to have, um, uh, production facilities that understand that this is the future of it's not even the future it's the now uh, but it's the new norm um, that was the first step for us you know we we quick we had we didn't have styles uh, locked in but we had silhouettes that we wanted to work around so the, the design process went pretty quickly actually and once we designed we we launched with two styles the wilson and the royal which are both you know two of our best-selling styles still um we believe that they're evergreen silhouettes so we don't really think those silhouettes are going to go away from our collection ever they're just going to change in color and material as we grow and develop and seasons come in and out and 
things change in fashion, but the silhouette itself will probably be around forever. Um, and, and that's how we, that's how we went off and got going. I mean, you know, we had tons of challenges. I, I'm making it sound like, yeah, you, we just designed it and it got made. There is a million steps in between that, that you never forecast, even though you know what the process is like, because we've done it for years. You, you, you're always, there's always surprises when you're producing a product. Yeah, let's talk about that. So before we get into that, like, who, was this design in-house? Like you designed all of the, uh, the footwear, was it in-house or did you hire somebody to come and help with that or how was that done? We did it all in-house. We still do it all in-house. Um, you know, we design is something that we uh, pride ourselves on. We don't outsource design. I mean, we may, we, we may, hire freelancers from time to time to submit ideas. And if we like the idea, we, we may work with it. Uh, but for the most part, we are a design driven organization. Um, design and marketing are kind of our two specialties. Uh, so that's how, that's how we start, made that product. Yeah. I mean, if, if your, I guess, uh, core value is in design, you can't really outsource that, right? Because in, in any case, if you, whatever it is, that is your kind of core value that you're creating a, as a business, as a, as a brand, as a company, you should definitely keep that in house and doesn't make sense to outsource because you should lose a lot of that control. Um, cool. So you mentioned, um, you know, footwear is not the same as like other forms of apparel. There's it's a lot more complicated. There's more technology involved with footwear. Um, so tell us about these, I guess, difficulties that, that you face. You know, you've, you've, you knew that there are manufacturers in the space already that well, I'm assuming were producing footwear already. So they're already familiar with that. But you said that there's still obstacles that you ran into. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what are some things that you didn't expect to run into, but, but then you did? Oh yeah, I mean, I can tell you a very clear memory. <clears throat> excuse me, um, a clear memory of of our. You know, we were a new company, and we were importing uh, shoes. You know, we were making them out of out of the country, so they had to be imported and come through through duties. Mm-hmm. And as a new company, uh, you get scrutinized a little differently until you build up a reputation of importing. You know, you're not importing drugs or (laughs) anything illegal so our first order got held in customs for about 12 days which delayed so the production was slightly late then it further gets delayed in customs and we had actually gone live and started selling it so stuff didn't actually ship to the customer for three weeks and they had already bought it on the website you know that was a (laughs) <laughs> that was a lesson in uh, customer service and and pain. Uh, you know, I felt horribly for the customer because it was completely out of our control. I felt terrible for us because it was a terrible way and a terrible first time experience for our, for a customer who was um, putting up their money on and, t- and trying out a new brand. Fortunately for us. Um, once people received the product, they were overwhelmingly satisfied and happy and have continued to be great loyalists. And that is where the great product comes into play. Like we felt super confident that they were going to love it when they got it, but it was a pain in the ass to get it that first round. And, uh, again, you know, thankfully we had very, very patient customers and, most of those customers continue to be with us today. And we have one of the, the highest repeat rates in, in our industry with almost 
for a brand that's barely two years old to have 50% of our customers repeating, that's, that's a pretty strong metric. Um, and, and we measure kind of customer satisfaction in a variety of ways, but the, the net is that our customers are super satisfied once they become, become customers and they show that by repeating often um, uh, our MPS score, which is a 69, and um, our Zendesk rating, which is a 96. So, you know, it's at the end, you know, we're business focused on customers and we want to provide the best product in the world for a value price. And that's what we're doing. Awesome. So you said a lot of interesting things there that I want to dive into, but there was, uh, first of all, those 12 days must have crawled by those two weeks waiting for oh, the clear dude, must like, have been the slowest time of your life. It was awful. Like I would, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but it was <laughs> an experience and, and one that was valuable one that, uh, you know, you, you step out of that and you realize like I need to forecast for problems and I can't launch a shoe until I absolutely know it can absolutely, you know, ship and, um, it was a lesson learned and one that we needed to learn. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, you know, about making sure that you pad your, I guess, your timing a little bit more, um, I guess, next time around. So I guess moving forward or maybe for, for new entrepreneurs that are listening out there, would you ever sell something that you didn't have, I guess, on site, not on site, but in your fulfillment center, like you have the inventory already, like, would you do that moving forward or would you still be, I guess, comfortable, um, kind of forecasting when you'll receive the shipments and uh, start selling before you had them on hand? Uh, yeah, look, I don't think pre-selling is a problem though. And I don't think it's, I, I, I don't think that's a business strategy decision. And, and if you make it, the, the, the takeaway is make sure you clearly communicate like this product will not ship until mm. you know, May 20th or whatever the date is in the future. Um, lots of brands do it. We've done it and customers are fine with it. The difference was we thought our stuff was going to show up in the warehouse on a Friday. So we're like, Hey, we can go live on Friday cause it's going to ship out on Monday and it didn't show up for three more Fridays. So that, that was the problem. Um, but in terms of, of, of selling something that you may not have yet, uh, I think as long as you communicate it clearly, mm-hmm. very, very clear on when that sh- product is going to ship out, customers are fine with it. Makes sense. So nowadays, when you look at your timelines, do you have like a uh, a multiplier that you apply to to expecting? Like, let's say you the the um, the manufacturer says they'll get it to you on Friday. Uh, how much time do you, I guess, give yourself to kind of pad things cr- so that you don't run into this issue? Yeah. Look, we 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 have a pretty well-oiled machine at this point. Mm-hmm. So we know within, you know, what our tolerance is within, you know, almost hours of when we can go live with something. Um, and, you know, there's still always potential um, unforeseen challenges. Like, you know, if a tornado comes through and wipes mm-hmm. out the warehouse, <laughs> you know. Can't plan for that. Gone, like, you, know, you don't forecast for that, but, but um, uh, that would be an example of something that could happen. It's unlikely uh, but generally, we, we, we know we pull the trigger and it, the machine works and it's been, you know, almost two years now. So cool. we've got that part down. Yeah, it makes sense. So you mentioned another thing too about um, repeat customers, and I want to definitely want to talk about your not just your strategy, but like um, you, the, how you get these, you know, such a great repeat rate. But you also mentioned your NPS, so that's like the net promoter score. Is that is that what that stands for? That's right. Cool. Can you tell us tell the uh, tell us a little bit more about what is Net Promoter Score and how do you measure something like that? Uh, well, 
I mean, a net promoter score generally measures, um, it's a, you know, it's a management tool that gauges a relationship with your customer and it's, it's a industry standard. A 50 is excellent, right? So if you have anything north of a 50, you are, you know, in the A plus category of, of, of your customer being satisfied. How do we measure it? We use, you know, we use a, a, a plugin actually, um, called Delighted, uh, which is a really slick plug-in and, and it surveys customers after they become, uh, you know, they, they basically get an email from Delighted uh, asking them to rate their experience with, with great. A 69 is in another, is pretty rare air. Uh, I believe Apple has one of the highest NPS scores in the world and I think they're a 70. Zappos, who prides themselves on, you know, being customer-centric and very focused on on their customer satisfaction uh, is lower than ours. Uh, if that gives wow. you some context on, on where we are in the footwork. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, I've, I've heard of this as more, more, I guess more used in the, the tech industry, um, you know, for software, for example. And I think that it boils down to um, a single question that you ask your customer or your user, uh, how likely are you to recommend our product or our company or our brand to, to others, like to your friends or family? And I think that, I think that's the kind of core question that they ask. And I'm not sure how the, the number gets calculated based on that, but um, the idea is that if the more people are saying, yes, I'd recommend you, you know, I'd see the better so i'd assume that's how how they calculate it somehow after that yeah i mean essentially it comes down to detractors and promoters and you never you don't want to have detractors because they're going to say hey uh, this brand sucks and you don't right. you know you don't want that we have uh fortunately very very few if uh, we don't get detractor scores i mean it's like a blue moon and generally when it happens it's um, a customer getting, you know, a product that slipped through, you know, um, uh, cute, you know, just quality control and it shouldn't have been shipped. Um, we're quick to react to that. And we generally, um, show that customer like, Hey, we made a mistake. This, this product should have never been sold. Didn't get, get caught off the quality control line. Here's a new one. Here's your money back. Um, and if you never come back, we understand generally, um, customers appreciate that. And then, they kind of turn around their their rating. Yeah, definitely. I think um, anytime a customer has a complaint, this is obviously an opportunity for you to change their mind. And it sounds like you guys do a great job with that. Um, so, you know, once you um, had all these products, you know, ready to go, you had the, manu- the manufacturer create them and they're ready to get to you. How were you guys able to get those um, initial customers? And right now I'm reading a headline here that says, uh, uh, how the shoe company sold out products in just 90 days. So tell us a little about how you were able to get the traction so quickly to, to get so many customers into your, uh, to your store, you know, especially because you didn't really have, uh, you know, you obviously had marketing experience in industry, but this is a brand new site, brand new business. How were you able to get things going so quickly? So um, we did have tons of marketing experience. What we didn't have was a budget to actually market. So we had to figure out, how are we going to get awareness for our new brand? Um, we leaned on two strategies, uh, social, and primarily that was through Instagram. And we were able to get around 10,000 followers um, from the first time we posted on Instagram till the time we launched, which was a matter of four months. Wow. So that was pretty accelerated um, um, growth on Instagram. And the second strategy was press. And we knew that we could reach a wide audience and make, you know, get a big awareness of, of a wide range of customers 
through press, which generally just doesn't cost, you know, it doesn't cost any money. It's a person making sure that press writes about you, but uh, you don't pay for it. So when we launched, we had those two levers that we pulled. <clears throat> we were covered in, in everything from, you know, the tech journals, tech crunch and fast company to the kind of endemic sneaker and street style sites like High Snobiety and Hypebeast and Complex uh, all the way up to the fashion publications at like GQ and Esquire. So um, that campaign uh, from that day, that second that the site went live, uh, built up a pretty wide demand and we, we had a pretty successful launch day. Very cool. So let's talk about um, social first. So Instagram, you said 10,000 followers in the four months. Uh, how, what, what, like, how were you able to do? Like, what were you posting about? Like, how frequently were you posting? Like, how were you able to grow uh, such a you know, large following in, in a short period of time? Yeah, well, funny enough, the thing we weren't posting was sneakers because we didn't have any. <laughs> we, we didn't even have a sample. So we started posting, um, and this is the theme that exists in our Instagram to this day. Like, we don't post product shots often we post inspirational shots about design and lifestyle that um, we are influenced by and how we look at the world and how we design product and what we're putting out and why so for the first few months I think th those are what 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 we what we did you know we started doing a thing called morning wood which was just a post every morning of of something from wood, whether it was a staircase or a bicycle. Um, and it was kind of a play on morning wood. And yeah. It was me and dudes laughed and we still do it today. And it's one of our most um, engaged posts we do. Um, but we, would, we, we, we talk about or we show, you know, interesting auto, you know, travel, food, cars, motorcycles, bicycles, women, just really – things that we're inspired by from a design perspective. And um, that's, how we, that's how we focused our, our Instagram. And you, you mentioned that I think nowadays you, you post more, I guess, product photos than, than previously because you didn't have any. Uh, but is the focus, like, you know, what is the harm in just filling up your Instagram, you know, feed with product photos? Can it hurt your business? Um, I believe it can. I don't know if, if other businesses succeed with just, you know, a bunch of product. I, I mean, for me, um, the best way to sell anything is to not try to sell it. It's just mm. to try to, you know, position. We're building a brand. So there, it's, it's, it's a little bit the tapestry of what, what a brand is, is not solely about a sneaker. There's mm -hmm. so many more things that go into it. And, we like to expose our, our community to those other things. We're not salesy in nature as a company. We don't, we don't over email people. We don't over promote. We don't over discount. We make great product at great prices and we stand behind it. And that's like, this is about education less than it is about selling because we think once you understand what we do and how we do it, that and you're willing to try it, we guarantee that you'll be satisfied. I mean, that's just what we've done now for two years straight. So there's no there's no reason why that would not that why that would change. Um, but we're we're not selling, and I feel like if you if you're posting pictures of product all day, that it's, it gets a little too salesy, and that's just not the tone we want to set. 
Yeah, I, lo- I love that, that um, I guess, phrase that you said, which is the best way to sell a product is not to sell it. Uh, but it seems like what you're doing instead is positioning your brand in the same, I guess, like mind space as the stuff that you are posting about. Like if you're posting a lot about design, travel, whatever it is that you are uh, interested in is likely, not, not, not likely, but whatever, po- basically posting stuff that your customers, your target customers are also interested in because then when you start placing your products inside that that same feed, it positions your product in the same again. I'm not sure of a better way to say, it, but the same like mind space as the um, the inspirational stuff that you're posting too. So I think that's a great kind of um, way of saying it. The best way to sell a product is not to sell it. I love that. Cool. So let's let's talk about um, uh, the press. Uh, I guess a run that you guys did. Uh, so how how do you know? Because you said you you got coverage from you know the sneakerhead kind of sites, uh, more f- general fashion sites, even tech sites. Like how did you? know who to, I guess, focus on? Uh, well, I guess we'll start there. A bunch of questions about this, but how did you know which publications to focus on? Well, again, you know, we, we I run marketing divisions at big companies, right? So I understood who the publications were and who the people were at those publications. So um, I didn't have to learn how to do it. Uh, we, we, we did hire a, a publicity firm to manage it, but we were very, very clear on what sites and what papers and what magazines um, we need to be in in order to have a successful launch. So uh, in our instance, it was we were very well aware of the market and with enough experience to, to not have to figure it out. And I, again, I think that gives us a huge advantage. We're, we're footwear guys by nature. Um, we're which is super critical in the sneaker space because authenticity rules. If you don't have authenticity, the sneaker culture will just essentially ban you. It's not, it's not, it's not, you can't really buy your way in Mm. Um, footwear or dress shoes. That's a little bit different sneakers. It's really culture based. And, uh, thankfully, you know, we're part of that culture. We grew up in the culture And we're invited into the culture, into all their kind of parties, if you will. So um, that's a huge advantage for us. I think people that are coming in, you know, graduating out of business school and think they're going to go make a sneaker brand, uh, they might have a little more difficulty Mm. in penetrating the market. Yeah, that that um, street credibility or street cred is, is important. Uh, no matter what industry you're in, you know, being able to uh, position yourself as a, just like them, just like your customers, I think uh, goes a long way. Yeah, and I, I think it's unique in sneakers. I don't, I don't think you have the barrier to entry if you wanted to make jackets or khakis. I don't think there's kind of like a uh, policing force that um, you know. There's no real khaki convention, if you will, but and sneakers, I mean, there's, there's sneaker events, there's sneaker websites, there's sneaker everything. There's people that wait in line for sneakers. That is a different type of business than another product in the kind of mm. fashion space, if you will. So that's what makes it um, both good and bad. If you're from it, great. If you're not, you're going to have some troubles. Mm, I see. I, I, I do. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's definitely uh, much more prevalent or stronger, I guess, in the, the sneaker culture. Cool. So, um, you know, because you have this experience with um, working on publications, uh, pitching the press, uh, I guess what kind of tips do you have, you know, on how to 
pitch your product in a way that helps you stand out above the competition. And, and I ask this because I, I'm really interested in knowing more about your pitch because it's um, you got coverage in. Uh, I, I, what did I guess initially imagine that you, you, the sneaker? Uh, I guess sneakers would show up on like a TechCrunch, for example, but you're able to get on there. So what was the angle? I guess that that you were able to um, approach these publications to get them to cover you and not just think of you as another footwear apparel company. Yeah, well, we, so you know, the tech sites wanted to write about us because we are, we were the first, you know, vertical sneaker brand, and and I think they were looking at the space of vertical businesses and why they're meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, us being the first sneaker brand, I think they wanted to make sure they wrote about that. You know, there's lots of benefits to being a vertical business, and and one of the key ones is we're able to make a premium, you know, premium product and offer it to the customer. Uh, at a value price, uh, as opposed to what, you know, uh, we make a sneaker in Italy, we sell it for $159. The closest competitor of an Italian made sneaker is 4X that. So, you know, the value proposition is tremendous in the category. I'm not saying $159 is cheap. It's not. It's $159. It's a lot of money for a sneaker. But in the category, it's the best value you're going to get. So, so we're not price driven. We're value driven. Um, we're actually price agnostic. I, I sell shoes for even more than $159. As long as I can provide value in the category and the class that it lives in, we're incredibly confident and happy. And so are our, so are our customers because today's customer is incredibly informed. They know they know the comparisons. They know that if they go into a big retailer or a luxury retailer and they pick up a shoe made in Italy, it's inc- it's it's impossible for them to see anything below four hundred and fifty dollars. They know that, so when they see our stuff and we can talk about being made in the same region as Italy and uh, in the same region, sometimes in the same factory as many of the luxury brands that they know, using the same suppliers and same leather and same you know Viketta calf lining and all the luxury materials we use. They understand that, wow, this is a very, very good product at a price that nobody's coming close to. So I think that disruption of the supply chain is what the tech industry really wanted to understand from mm-hmm. a sneaker standpoint. And, and that's why they wrote and continue to write about us. That makes sense. I've seen them cover, like you were saying earlier, Warby Parker. They've covered like those brands, for, those kind of companies as well. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did you, um, I guess, what was the pros? I, I'm assuming you didn't. Uh, pitch the same angle or story to each of these sites? Like how do you, how are you able to, I guess, customize your approach? Well, you got to know your audience, right? I think the sneaker guys, they want to know something different. Like, mm. you know, but, but again, value is always baked into our, our story. So we were making a shoe for a sneakerhead dude and it's $60, but it should be $110 from, you know, our competitors, right? He still understands value, but he also understands it's the same sneaker that you know J Cole wears. Or um, you know, we do a we do a collaboration with Marshawn Lynch, who is you know arguably one of the best running backs in the game ever. Uh-huh. Now he's retired now, but he's a, he's a known sneaker guy. And you know, why does Marshawn Lynch do a collab with greats? Right, it, 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 he wanted to do a luxury sneaker that he could price accessibly for his audience because he didn't want to have he didn't want them to have to pay five hundred bucks or more. It, that sneaker story 
is meaningful and relevant. That sneaker sold out in less than an hour. It was published, it was written about on, um, uh, not TechCrunch, sorry, why am I forgetting? Mashable, it was the most shared story. We, we released that sneaker in November of 2015 and it was the most shared story on Mashable for the entire month. You know, that's, that shows you the power of the sneaker culture. Um, so that, that communication was a little bit different than what we would have done um, from a tech angle. But the brand DNA lives throughout every story we tell. And I think that's what is make, makes a brand credible, that it can live in different environments without losing its awesome authenticity. Oh, I see. So you have this core, um, I get, well, I don't want to use the word value again, but basically like you're saying values baked into the brand itself. So then when you approach uh, like like TechCrunch, for example, the angle, it still comes down to value, but then you're spinning in a way where it's value, the value is being generated because you're a vertical company and you're able to control the entire I guess, um, supply chain. Um, and then when it comes to, I guess, Mashable, um, the maybe more of a social aspect of it, where because you work at Marshawn Lynch and he wants to sell high-end sneakers at an affordable price, it still has to do with value, but now the story has changed, but it still all boils down to the core, I guess, message of your brand. Is that what you're getting at? That's exactly right. Like, so that, that the Marshawn audience may be not so psyched about or, you know, hey, supply chain disruption. That's, yeah. You know, they're not like psyched about that. But the end result is the same. They're like, holy shit, I got a really great, amazing sneaker made in Italy for a price that nobody else is offering. Where um, on the tech side of things, people are like, wow, that is amazing. They're disrupting a supply chain. And that's really critical for the growth of any business today because supply chain matters. They're able to make a shoe with a you know, at a price and sell it at a better price. And, you know, so the audiences um, have different interests, but the core values of our story actually never change. Yeah, I love that. I think the, I think the key lesson here for other listeners out there is that you can always uh, customize, I guess, the story without staring away from your message. And I think that's really important, especially when you are reaching out to to press to try to get them to cover your story because you have to be able to tell a story that their listeners or their readers are going to be interested in. And I think that's um, a great kind of um, lesson there. Cool. So um, let's um, talk about um, pricing because you mentioned this come, come up, came up a few different times, but then you specifically mentioned that you're price agnostic. Can you talk a little bit more about, I guess, what that means to you and, and how do you guys figure out pricing? Yeah, I mean, we our pricing is, is a function of you know, what it costs to make the shoe and the margin that we, we fix to our business. Um, and frankly, we're able to get a better margin than most of the legacy brands and still sell a product for much less than they can. So it's really a win-win. Like we have a slightly higher margin than, than most sneaker companies and the customer is still saving a ton of money. And those are the kind of businesses that are interesting. And, and that's why we're doing this. And we think we can scale this and make a really big business out of grades. Um, we, we try to, we use premium materials in everything we do. So we're not trying to get the lowest price in the cost of goods. We're actually trying to make, we, we up spec materials across the board. So, you know, 
we make a shoe, it's $59. It's on a Vibram. That's actually, sorry. That's, it's on a Vibram sole and it's $49. Now, there's not another Vibram sold sneaker in the market for under $80. So Vibram put that particular sneaker, which is called the Rosen, into their museum in Boston where Vibram North America is based. The, the materials we use are all premium. So we, are, we could make that shoe for much less if we used a substandard or subpar quality sole. We could probably save 40% on the cost of the shoe. But we believe in quality, you know, style, quality, and value. Those are three things we talk about at Greats every single day. And it has to go through every one of those filters for us to put out a product. And if it doesn't, we don't make it. So we believe in Vibram. They've been around for many, many years. They're one of the premium sole makers in the world. There's brands that are everybody uses them. Ralph Lauren uses them. Merrill uses them. You know, North Face uses them. And Greats uses them. And everybody uses them because they make great souls. Uh, so that's an example of how we are um, over-specking on the quality to make sure that people can never say to us, your shoes are inexpensive because you don't use the best materials. And we can argue and prove that we use the best materials and our shoes are inexpensive because we disrupt the supply chain and not because we sacrifice mm. them. So I think you probably hinted at this a little bit earlier um, about the question of getting these repeat customers. You said 50% of your customers that buy for the first time will buy again. So, you know, I think you mentioned, or I guess you alluded to that the, the product itself is always the key, right? Going back to the product, making sure it's a product that people are actually happy with so that they do buy it again. But is there more to it? Like, how do you, you have a great product uh, and then is there any more to it, I guess, to, to get those repeat purchases other than just, you know, having a great product? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying it. I think the great product is the anchor, but, you know, how do you communicate with a customer? What's their customer? What's the customer experience like when they buy something or have questions about something? How do you re-engage a customer that, um, you know, do you, do you email them to death to try to, to buy something? We don't believe that that's the technique you should use. A lot of brands do it. Personally, I've unsubscribed from almost every single brand that I actually like because they send me too much crap. I don't want an email from them every day telling them about their 40% off sale. You know, so, so that tactic of how do you communicate with a customer is something that we consider all the time. I think our um, informative approach without being salesy is the right tone, and that's the tone we try to take. And I think our customer appreciates that. So they want to be informed, but not annoyed. And I think that tactic has worked very well for us and, and, and probably also part of the reason why um, our customers are happy to repeat. I mean, mm. the great product is table stakes, in my opinion. If you're not making the best possible product you can, you're probably not going to have a great long-term business. Right. Um, so after that, it's, you know, how do you treat the customer? What are your values as an organization? How do you treat your employees? Uh, what is the perception of your brand in the market? There's a host of things. Not, that's all brand building, right? The brand part of this is, to me, the most important part. And it's art, not science. And it's really, really difficult. Um, but if you do all those things well, you, you, know, you have a successful company. Yeah, so I want to talk about this uh, approach you said, which is informative without being salesy. So how does this actually look, let's say, in your emails? Like, What are you... 
how do you this this uh, I guess um, goal in mind of you want to be informative, but you don't want you know obviously at the end of the day you want the sale, but you trying to come across salesy. So how does it actually end up looking when you send out let's say an email to um, a past customer? Oh, I can't tell you that. I mean that's our special secret. <laughs> oh no, I mean the reality is it, it's look we when we launch a new style or a new color or a new material on a style. We send out an email to everybody and let them know that this is available. This is the price. You can click here to buy it. Just don't shove it down their throat. What we don't do is then email them 20 more times over the next 20 days, right? Like where, where many, many brands or most brands are doing that. And, and, and <clears throat> you're just seeing like unsubscribe rates go up. You're seeing uh, people opting out of emails because it's annoying. Like you, you have to find the balance of, of um, staying top of mind without cluttering somebody's inbox. Um, and it's, again, it's, it's, a, it's a hard balance to find. It, if you find it, I think you have a better um, uh, metric of conversion and customer satisfaction, which is what everybody should be working towards. It's just tactically, it's, a sli- it's slightly different than trying to beat somebody over the head to get them to buy something or beating them over the head, annoying them and discounting across the range. Like, oh, first email, second email, 10th email. By the time you're done, you've already 50%ed yourself off, you know, 50% off just to get them to buy something, uh, which we don't think is the right way to build a brand. Yeah, I think the key is definitely that it varies between industries and different companies on this whole, you know, how frequently should you be sending out your message. Uh, but if you, you just got to be providing value too, you know, you can't just, like you're saying, you can't just be sending out 20 emails talking about discounts or just pushing your product because that's not valuable, right, at a day to the customer because they're not getting anything out of it inherently. It just seems like you're asking for something from them. So I think the key to it is, like you're saying, find the balance depending, depending on your brand, your company, uh, your industry, and then of course always be providing value as well. And like you're saying, the informative approach rather than being, being salesy. Because most of the time, when you're being salesy, it's not that valuable to the. I guess it's not inherently valuable just by pitching your product. So that makes a lot of sense. Right, and, and 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 what's really important for us is like at the end of the day, we're actually saving money if a guy's going to go out and buy a pair of sneakers. We're, we make a better product for less. So we, we kind of want to say, hey, this is available to you. And when you're ready to try it, you're going to be really happy. And then you can become a customer for life. And we're going to help you save money because we can just make better stuff for less. That, that's a, you know, a, a point of pride as a brand. And we theoretically could be a little bit more aggressive in trying to educate the customer because we're like, hey, man, we're trying to save you money. Like we could take that position. We don't, but that is the reality. At the end of the day, we, we have less impact on your wallet um, than many of our competitors. So that is something um, I think people appreciate. I think people know that once they get a few messages from us, and that's why they quickly become a, cu- a customer and, more importantly, an ambassador. Um, so they, they start to help. Like the viral word of mouth on greats is, is, is fantastic. So customers are now helping us promote our vision uh, to their friends because they're like, hey, you should try this brand. It's really good. And, and, and we couldn't be happier. 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, another kind of point that comes up to mind when you say that is that if your customers are going to benefit from, well, the mindset that you should have is that your customers should feel like they're actually going to get a benefit or be better off because they purchase your product. And if you don't have that mindset, then you're kind of, it's going to be really hard to win the game. You know, if you don't feel confident in your product enough that you can't for sure say that they're going to be better off by buying from you. And I think that hearing the way that you're talking about it, that's definitely the mindset that you guys have. Cool. So, um, you know, thanks so much for coming on, Ryan. So, uh, greats.com is the website. Uh, what, what are the plans, I guess, for the remainder of this year? What do you guys have um, ready to go for uh, 2016? Yeah, I mean, so we've got we've got some women's sizes coming out. We 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 didn't think we'd be doing women's, um, but we had uh, let's call it hate mail from girls asking <laughs> us to make smaller sizes in some of our um, what what I would call unisex styles. So we're, we're coming out with women's as we, you know, we'll roll that out through the summer. Um, we've got some really great collaborations coming out with, you know, to be, to be named, you'll have to look for that in the press, but we have some great collabs coming out with, um, like-minded brands and individuals who we like to collaborate with, which are generally, uh, pretty limited edition stuff, but really special. Um, and you know, we're just continuing to, to, to grow the business. We're adding, we're hiring, we're opening our first store. Uh, like in Manhattan, likely uh, late Q3, early Q4 this year. So it's it's uh, it's time to grow the business, and we're super excited about it. Cool, super excited for your store. Definitely want to want to stop by and check it out once it's open. So greats.com again, greats brand on Instagram. Anywhere else that you recommend a listeners check out, they want to follow along with what you guys are up to. Oh yeah, our Snapchat is starting to come along, so it's 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 under greats brand, but um, Snapchat is getting really fun for us, so you should check that out too. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ryan. All right. Thanks, Felix. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com for a free 14-day trial.